0: In just a minute again but hey welcome to New City Church. My name is Travis I'm one of the pastors here and it's always my pleasure to be with you to open God's word with you this morning and we're going to get to that here in just one second but I would love it if you would help me in joining uh, we have a guest this morning with us all the way from Hamburg Germany this morning. Uh, this is Dr. Jurgen Kramer and <laughs> you' really excited. Dr. Jürgen is on staff with one of our newest global partners, All Nations, and I'll let him speak about that here in just a sec. But um, the story of how we came to know Jurgen was, was really a only God's story. Some of you will remember back in March, myself and a few others went to Germany to visit our women from Afghanistan that we as, as a church are continuing to sponsor, and a few of them ended up in Hamburg, Germany. And before we left, a friend of a friend of a friend said, Hey, well, there's this one guy I know in Germany. Uh, do you want to meet him? And so we said, sure, we don't know anybody else. So why not? And little did I know what God would have in store with us as, as now getting to partner with Jurgen and um, All Nations Ministry. there, working with displaced people, refugees. And so a lot more to come on that. I'm really excited. But Jurgen, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, just would love it if you would share just a couple minutes about you and your ministry and whatever else you'd like to share.
1: Thank you, Travis. It's such a joy to be here at New City Church. It was such an w- amazing welcome. I, I can't believe it. And I'm here to thank you for this amazing gift you have given us in Hamburg. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. it. It was too good to be true. So thank you so much. So I'm married to Monica. She is probably the best evangelist you can ever meet. And we have two adult uh, daughters and three grandchildren. And uh, All Nations is a small missions organization globally. And the work in Hamburg is focused on making Jesus known among Muslim refugees. And in 2015, we had this huge refugee crisis in Europe. You probably all heard about it. And uh, we thought, wow, this is an opportunity. This is a Kairos moment because the people we can't reach in their homelands are coming to us. Let's have this opportunity not pass and I'm very much against Islam. So I, I really was scared to do that. I didn't know how to handle this. I didn't know how to approach a Muslim. But it was really not the most difficult thing to do because they were so desperate, they were so lonely, they were so, I mean, they lost everything. They went through so much trauma and the love of Christ was the one thing they really needed. And so in the meantime, we have baptized over 400 people from Afghanistan, Iran, Syria, <laughs> Iraq, and uh, it meant the joy of our lives to see people coming to faith. And every single one of them shares that the first time in their life they have felt peace. And for us, it's such a given to have peace, but Muslims don't have peace in their life. They're always about... What will happen to me? And so the, the wonderful thing about this is that all of them have families in their homelands, and they all have video communication with their families and friends, and they all share Christ at home. Nearly all of them do. So that their families who are also in these kind of suppressed environments can get to know the freedom and joy and love of Jesus. And so I think that's a bigger impact that we have, Sue them reaching their homelands. And we have baptized people over video in in their countries, which is kind of weird, but what could you do? And uh, so I'm so grateful that you have joined us in reaching Muslims for Jesus. I think that will change this world. Thank you so much. And
0: just for context, um, you remember back um, when russia invaded ukraine we took up an offering and we wanted to uh, use that money towards helping displaced people and i want you to know all nations was one of the places that we went to because um one of the things they also have been doing is as ukrainians have been coming in to hamburg right in the station Jurgen and his team are right there with signs and saying hey come with us we can help you we can pray for you so it's been really remarkable so i want you to see that as well but this is this is part of where that is going towards so well, Thank you, Juergen. Um, I thought we might have a little bit of fun this morning uh, with Jürgen because I, I, as we often do before we start the message. We read the passage, and so I asked him to humor me a little bit, and I said, What if I read the passage in English and then you read it in German? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, y'all like to hear it? So. Okay. I thought this could be fun. So um, if you would stand for the reading of our passage this morning, we are continuing our, our series in the book of Judges. And just want to, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in it, and so I just want to read, this is out of Judges chapter 10, verses uh, 6 through 10. It says this, it says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They served the images of Baal and Asherah and the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. They abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites who began to oppress them that year. For eighteen years they oppressed the Israelites east of the Jordan and in the land of the Amorites, that is Gilead. The Ammonites also crossed to the west side of Jordan and attacked Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. The Israelites were in great distress. Finally, they cried out to the Lord for help, saying, We have sinned against you because we have abandoned you as our God and have served the images of Baal. Now
1: here he is taught taten die Israeliten wieder, was dem Herrn missfiel. Sie verehrten Baal und Astarte, ebenso die Götter der Syrer und Sidonier, der Moabiter, Amoriter und Philister. Vom Herrn wollten sie nichts wissen und dienten ihm nicht mehr. Da wurde er zornig und lieferte sie den Philistern und Ammonitern aus. Noch im selben Jahr eroberten die Ammoniter das Gebiet der Israeliten in Gilead östlich des Jordan, wo früher die Amoriter gelebt hatten. 18 Jahre lang unterdrückten und verfolgten sie die Israeliten. Schließlich überquerten sie den Jordan und griffen auch noch die Stämme Judah, Benjamin und Ephraim an. So gerieten die Israeliten in große Not. Sie schrien zum Herrn und Bekannten, We have gegen dich gesündigt. We have dich verlassen und anderen Göttern gedient.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Amen. Doesn't matter what language you hear it in. It's just great to hear God's Word this morning. All right. Well, thank you, Jürgen. I appreciate it. Let's pray this morning as we jump into God's Word. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning and to be a body of believers coming to celebrate the risen savior and be encouraged and grow in, in your truth and I, I simply pray that this morning that the holy spirit would speak through me that this would not be my words this would be your words and that each and every word would help draw each of us to a deeper loving relationship with you and a love more for this world i thank you for your again all nations and father we particularly lift them up right now and that you would give them favor in their continued efforts to reach some of the most unreached people in the world that in father we're thankful and we thank you most all for the cross and what it means and everybody said amen. amen okay well thank you all again and once again it's glad thank you all so much for being here if you're new especially thank you so much for being here i did want to remind you that today at around twelve thirty at our south park campus we're going to have an event called global conversations uh, with Jürgen. and so this will be a time for him we'll spend about an hour and a half or so getting to hear more of his story and what All Nations is about. So if you're interested at all, please come. we would love to have you. We'll have lunch. If we run out, we'll order pizza. Don't worry about it. Um, But we'd love to have you. If you want to expand your worldview, if you want to hear what God is doing around the world, I just encourage you to do that. So today at South Park Campus at 1230, I'd love for you to be a part of that. But we are continuing our series in in the book of Judges. And I know we took a couple of weeks off right there, but um, I, I really enjoy the book of Judges. Um, but one of the things about Judges is that Judges seems to be the same story over and over again. But Judges is full of a lot of stories, and, and they're, they're certainly unique, but they all seem to possess one kind of cycle, if you will, that seems to happen. In fact, we have a graph that, that I want to remind us of, and this is really the, the image of what the book of Judges is really all about. You see, the Judges is the time when we see the Israelites constantly falling in and out of fellowship with God. And so you see this cycle all throughout the book of Judges where the people begin in relationship with God. They have faith in God. They're honoring him. They're following him. He's blessing them. There's a lot of stuff happening. But you see there at the top, they rebel. And that angers God. And then what he does is he, he hands them over to these other enemies, the, the, the people who they, they, he said don't associate with, don't follow their gods. He hands them over, and then you see they cry out. They finally realize, wow, this is a terrible idea. We shouldn't be associating with this. But then God, in his grace and his in His faithfulness, does what he always does. He, he brings about a salvation. He brings about uh, redemption for them through these people called the judges. So we're not talking about this type judge. We're, a judge is more like a military, uh, a leader type person. And then we see peace, and then uh, sadly as the judge dies, we see the people fall back into this motion. And so we're going to continue talking about that this morning, but we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 10 and 11 this morning. If you want to go ahead and open up some, a copy of your scripture or go to the New City app, we're going to be looking at one particular judge this morning, um, a, young, a young man named Jephthah. Now, if you really want to get technical here and you want to pronounce his Hebrew name, um, it would be more likely to pronounce Yiftah. So if you need to clear your throat right now, if you want to practice your Hebrew and, and like so if you feel like you need a cough, just say ifa and'll it'll, it'll sound natural for you. Uh, but for our English vernacular, let's just call him Jephthah this morning. Sound good. So um, I, I really love the story of Jephthah and, and I think what you're going to see is how interesting his story is and, and why it is that God chose to use him. But I, I want to start in a little different fashion this morning. I actually want to go to the end of his story first. And then we're going to work our way back and see the, the whole picture of what, how God uses his life. So if you have a copy of scripture, I want to invite you to Judges chapter 11. And we're going to start in verse 30. This is kind of more towards the end of, of Jephthah's life here. And Judges chapter um, 11, verse 30 begins this. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went to the land of Gilead and Manasseh. And from there he led an army against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me victory, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave him victory. He crushed the Ammonites, devastating about 21 towns. In this way, Israel defeated the Ammonites. But when Jephthah returned home, his daughter came out to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his own one and only child, and he had no other sons or daughters. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish, and he says, Oh, my daughter, he cried, you have completely destroyed me. You have brought disaster on me, for I have made a vow to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. The daughter replied, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must do it. For the Lord has given you great victory. But first, let me go up and roam into the hills and weep with my friends because I will die a virgin. Jephthah said, you may go. And he sent her away from two months. And when she returned home, her father kept the vow he had made and she died a virgin. So it has become a custom of Israel for young Israelite women to go away for four days each to lament the fate of Jephthah's daughter. So why are we talking about Jephthah this morning? What a tragic end to this young man's life and his leadership here. But I think what we're going to see today is, although we've started here more towards the end of his life, and we see this great horrific tragedy that's based on a a useless vow, there's more to Jephthah's story than that. His, His story is far more interesting to me because here's what's interesting about Jephthah. Jephthah will be a judge for about six years in Israel. And we end his his rule here with this horrible, tragic story. But here's what's interesting to me. You do not hear the name Jephthah again in the Bible until over a thousand years later when the author of Hebrews writes his book. And if any of you have ever read the book of Hebrews, the the author of Hebrews spends a, a large amount of time talking about what faith is and how faith is central to our relationship with Christ, that faith is really the essence of what life is all about. And and the author gets to this famous chapter in chapter 11. Some of you, I'm sure, have read it. We we often call it the Hall of Faith because what the author does is as he's talking about faith, he gets to this point in chapter 11, he says, I want to talk to you about some great examples of faith. And so you might remember this in Hebrews chapter 11, that the author starts unpacking some of the great role models of our faith throughout history. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Moses. He talks about King David. Some of the most famous people in all of history. And sure enough, Jephthah's name gets mentioned. A section of scripture dedicated to men and women who have demonstrated this this immense faith in God and who he is and what he's all about. And the author says, and Jephthah's worthy to be called that This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. It says this, How much more should I say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, Samuel, and the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice, and they received what God had promised them. They shut the mouth of lions, they quenched the flames of fire, and they escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. So how is it that a man whose life ends with such a terrible, tragic vow that is not based in faith whatsoever, how is it that he years later gets remembered as one of the, the great heroes of faith? How do we go from that to that? And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the, the, the unpack really the, the full story of who Jephthah is. But more importantly, what we're going to talk about this morning is why we should never put our own promises before God's promises. That's, that's our big topic for today. So uh, let's go back to the beginning, shall we? Let's go back to Judges chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 1 this morning. So if you have a copy of scripture, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 here. So it says this. Now, Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. He was the son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also had several sons, and when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. You will not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you are the son of a prostitute. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him. Now, I don't know about you, but this to me is one of the greatest cold openings in all of scripture to me. Right? Does this not just seem like the, 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 like the plot for a great movie right here? Because in just three verses, we're introduced for the first time to this guy, Jephthah. And we learn so much about this guy who is, who is seemingly going to be the next judge of Israel. And yet he has one of the most bizarre backgrounds that we've ever seen. Look at this again, right? We don't know a lot about Jephthah in his time, but we do know a few things. First off, we begin with he was really good at fighting. I wonder what that was like as he was a kid, okay? He was really, really, he was a good fighter. He was a good warrior. We know that. Second, we know that he was the son of Gilead and a prostitute. Now, here's why this is important. Gilead, his father, would have been Jewish, okay? His dad was Jewish and Israeli guy, However, his mom, being a prostitute, would have most likely meant that that his mother was a, quote, pagan. That Gilead had a a child with this woman who was not part of Israel, which was, of course, not allowed under the law, right? You weren't allowed to do this. So he he was good at fighting. He was the son of a a Jewish man and a, and a, a pagan mother. And as we see here, culturally, what would have been pretty common in this time is as a result of that he is immediately deemed a social pariah he is an outcast he is an outcast by birth just just by simply being born he is automatically placed on the fringes on the hinges and verse two tells us about one of the great tragedies in his life that his own brothers his half brothers came to him and said you're not worthy to be a part of our family not only that, you need to get out. You will, you will not be a part of our family. You will not receive the blessings of our family. You have to they literally chase him out. So the son of a prostitute and an outcast from his home, own home, and then notice what he becomes. Verse 3, this is just remarkable to me. He says he fled to the land of and Listen to this again. Soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him. This is the start to every super superhero movie, isn't it? Did you ever see The Dark Knight? And you remember Bane? Do you remember, like, every time you watch these, these superhero movies, there's always some villain. And it's, it's like the exact same past, right? He was born into a rough family, and then he was kind of an outcast. And that's exactly where we see this guy. An outcast from his family. And notice this. I just love how it ends in verse 3. And, oh, by the way, he, land a, he, he led a group of rebels. It's interesting, by the way, that that word worthless, In in the original text, the worthless rebels, what it would have really kind of been interpreted as is that that word meant empty or vain, void of morality. This is not a good group. I don't know what all they did. I don't think I want to know what all this group of rebels did. But I don't think they were going village to village passing out cupcakes. Let's call it what it is. When you are people described as having lacking morality, vain, empty, let's call it what it is. These, these are probably some of the worst people you would ever see. Um, who knows what all they did? Did they rob? Did they steal? Did they murder? At the, at the very least, I'm sure they were just disruptors of the peace. And yet, we have a man here Jephthah who is their leader, and God's not done with him. There is more to this story than meets the eye. Because when we start with these three verses and we, and we read this, we think, this is going to be the guy that God is going to use? This guy? We're going to see so much more. To him. God is going to do amazing things, and, and he's going to overcome Jephthah's trauma and his tragedy and his, pra- and his past. So let's continue reading on. Verse 4, it says this. At about that time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. And when when they attacked, the elders of Gilead sent to Jephthah, saying, come and be our commander. Help us fight. And Jephthah said to them, aren't you the ones who hated me and drove me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now? Verse 8 says, because we need you, the elders replied. If you lead us in battle against the Ammonites, we will make you ruler over all the people of Gilead. So Jephthah said, let me get this straight. If I come with you, and if the Lord gives me victory, you will really make me ruler over all the people? Verse 10, the elders replied, the Lord is our witness. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and and of the people, made him the ruler and commander of the army. At Mizpah, in the presence of the Lord, Jephthah repeated what he had said to the elders. And this is just already shaping up to be an interesting story. The, The outlaw. Social outcasts, the social outcast, the social pariah has now become the only hope. The, the Israelites, as now the Ammonites are crushing in on them, as they're about to wage war on them, the, the elders and the leaders of the, of the community realize they have no one to help them. And the only thing they remember in their mind is, hey, what about that guy Jephthah? I know he was a social pariah. We didn't like him. He was the son of a prostitute, all this stuff. But yeah, isn't he a pretty good fighter? Do you think he could come back and help us? And that's exactly where we find him. They, they're back into this sin cycle that we talked about, and they're crying out, they're looking for redemption, and the only thing they know to do is go back to Jephthah because they know he's a good fighter. However, here's what's the amazing part of the story to me is what we're going to see is that Jephthah will be successful, but it's not because he's a good fighter. It's not because he's a great warrior. You see, God is not interested in Jephthah's talents. God is not interested in in the unique things that make Jephthah Jephthah. Because what we're going to see is that what God's actually interested in is his heart. Behind the image of this outlaw, what you're going to see is there is a man of faith. And we'll see how God is going to redeem that. So let's pick back up here. Look at verse uh, 12 with me here. So as Jephthah becomes The quote, new leader of Israel, as the the elders have said, yes, we're on board, we're willing to have you lead us here. Uh, This is the very, I want you to see the very first thing that Jephthah does. Verse 12 says this, then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammon saying, why have you come to fight against my land? Now, this is always striking to me because here you have a great warrior, a man who has probably been in so many fights and so many battles of his life. And yet the very first act that he does is the, quote, new judge of Israel, as the new leader, is he, he chooses diplomacy. In my mind, I would have thought, if this is a guy, a great warrior, wouldn't he just instantly start with battle? And yet that's not what he does because we learn here that his very first act is he starts with diplomacy. He comes to this king of the Ammonites and he says hey, what's the deal? Why are you even attacking us? And this is where we start to see change happen in his life, right? Because look at verse 13. The king of Ammon answered Jephthah's messengers. He says, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they stole our land from the Arnon River to the Jabbok River and all the way to the Jordan. Now then, give back the land peaceably." Jephthah comes and he says, listen, how about let's try this with talking first? Let's see where we can go. And he's instantly met with this challenge from the King Ammonites because what he accuses the Israelites of doing is stealing the land. Now, unfortunately, what King Ammon doesn't expect is that this guy, Jephthah, is actually more knowledgeable than, he's, than he thinks he is. Because look at verses 15 through 7 to me, right? So Jephthah, when he hears this, He responds and he said, Israel did not steal the land from you. When the people of Israel arrived at Kadesh from Egypt, they sent messengers to the king of Eden asking permission to pass through the land. But they were denied. So the Israel stayed in Kadesh. And finally, they went around through the wilderness. And they traveled along the eastern border of Moab. But they never once crossed the Arnon River into Moab. You see, what what Jephthah does is really... Incredible, because you don't expect this from him. What, what he does is Jetha knows the history. Even the son of a prostitute, the, the outlaw, the one who has been kicked out of his homeland, he actually knows more about God's story than we would maybe initially think about him. That in fact, he, he knows what what his father probably taught him and others as he was a young child, the stories of God leading people through the wilderness, the the power of God uh, leading them through the desert and and defeating their enemies. And And so he challenges the king and he says, well, that's not true. Everything that you're trying to say is not true. And so, of course, diplomacy won't work if there's no trust, if it's based on lies. And this is why I think this is so important is because we start to see a little bit of this faith Come out in Jephthah. This this renegade outlaw is showing another side of himself that God is going to start using in a powerful way. Right, He he knows the stories and he has enough faith to say, that's not true. I want to challenge you on that, king, because I know the story of God. I know what he's capable of and I believe that. This is one of the great moments of, of Jephthah's faith. And see, I realized something this week. I think there's a major misconception in Christianity. I think we, we make this mistake that, that oftentimes great faith, the, that great faith is limited to a certain number of people. That to, to demonstrate a, a, a tremendous faith in God is only reserved to those who are, quote, more spiritually mature. That, that, that great faith is limited to just a certain group of people that, that have a characteristic about them that no one else could. That we could sit here and say, I don't have that level of faith. And I think that's a great misconception because as we see throughout Scripture, great faith is not bound to a single person or how well they act. I, I was doing some studying a few weeks ago. I was teaching down in Costa Rica, and I was, I was preparing some of the lessons, and there was a, a word that caught my eye as I was reading through the Gospels, and it was the word amazed. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but in the Gospels, in all four Gospels, there are only two times that Jesus was ever amazed, okay? So in all the things Jesus saw and witnessed, Jesus, only two times are recorded that Jesus was, quote, amazed, that it caught him off guard. And both times were regarding people's faith. So the first time is when Jesus returns to Nazareth, to his own hometown, and he starts preaching, and his own town people start mocking him. And they scoff him, and they just dismiss him, and he says, I, I, I'm he was amazed at their disbelief. So on one, the first time, he was amazed at disbelief. The second time, he was amazed. You might remember the story of the Roman official. In Luke chapter 7, there was a Roman official whose servant was really, really sick and was about to die. And he and he had a special relationship with the servant. And of course, as a Roman official, he would have tried everything, right? He would have done everything he could to heal and and get this servant back to full health, and nothing was working until he realized that Jesus was in the area. Do you remember this story? And he sends out some of his other servants and they say, hey, go get Jesus. We need him. I'm willing to try anything. I don't know who he is, but just go get him. I've heard things about him. So he sends the messengers to Jesus. Jesus and the people begin walking to the Roman official's house. And do you remember what happens? Right before Jesus gets there, the official sends out more messengers. And they come to Jesus and they say, listen, he he wants to tell you that he's not worthy for you to come in his house. He tells Jesus, he says, I I don't deserve for you to be under my roof. But he says, he makes this amazing statement. He says, but I know, Jesus, that you can just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And it's this pretty special story because Jesus turns to the crowd and and Luke records, he says, Jesus was amazed because he had never seen such faith in all of Israel. It's only two times that Jesus was ever, quote, amazed. And it was at someone's faith. You see, one moment of faith in our life can unlock so much experience of who God is. That's what God is asking of us. He's not asking for what skills you have, what abilities you have, what achievements you have. He wants this one thing from us, and that is faith. So Jephthah may not have been the most likely of candidate, but he has one thing that God desires, and that is faith. You want to impress Jesus? Trust him. we see the story go on that because of this, God uses him in a powerful way. Look at with me in verse 28. After Jephthah continues his discourse with the king and he defends his position and he's demonstrating his faith in God. Verse 28 says, but the king of Ammon paid no attention to his message. And then verse 29 says this. And at that time, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he went through the land of Gilead and Manasseh, and from there he led the armies against the Ammonites. See, this is the part that is so encouraging to me, is that when Jephthah demonstrates his faith, look how God responds. God is faithful to his faithfulness today. The Bible tells us here that because of Jephthah's faith, we learn this, this thing that the Spirit of the Lord... Came came upon him. You see, the elders wanted Jephthah's fighting ability and his warrior spirit, but God wanted his heart. He wanted his faith. And here's the great news for us today: is that's the same God that we have today. See, God has designed each of us, and He's given us all these wonderful gifts and abilities and talents. Everything He's given us a lot, but all that He wants is our love and our faith. The problem, as we saw earlier, though, is that even though we had faith. Jephthah's problem was that he failed to know God in a personal way, and that's what brings us back full circle here. We read in verse 29 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, but then notice immediately what we read earlier. So immediately after the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, it says Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And this is the vow that we read at the beginning here. You see, it's a, it's a tragic and unnecessary vow and yet verse 29 is the most important part of the story, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You see, what Jephthah failed to realize is that at that point, when the Spirit of God came upon him, that's all he needed. Jephthah didn't need anything else in his life. You see, when we have the Spirit of God in our lives, we, we become equipped with, the, with the, the, the power of God to work in and through us, right? To have the Spirit of God working and living in us means that he, he convicts us, he changes us, he empowers us. He leads us. He gives us everything that we need because this is what we are made for. We're made to know God, to experience him, to have him live in our life. Because when we have the Spirit of God, we start to understand that the Spirit of God has no limits. He is capable of anything. He can cast out demons. He can heal the sick. He can defeat any army out there. There is nothing that the Spirit of God cannot do. And there's nothing that the Spirit of God cannot do through you and I. And so the tragedy of Jephthah begins with him not understanding that the vow that he makes is completely unnecessary. He tells God, if you give me victory, I will sacrifice anything for you. And the problem is, God says, I I didn't ask that. I don't need that from you. He makes the classic mistake that I think all of us, if we're honest, make this mistake. Jephthah makes this classic mistake of believing he must do something for God in order to find favor, but that's never been the story of the Bible. You see, the great pursuit of the Christian life and what, what Jephthah failed to realize is that when, when we, tr- we we have to trust not only what God can do in others, but what God can do in our own life. Jephthah seemed to have great faith in knowing what God could do for others, but he failed to understand what God could do in his own heart and in his own life. And I wonder how many times we make this mistake. Be honest with you. Have you ever said this prayer where you said, all right, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you? I have. I make this vow all the time to God, and yet I realize even reading this story that God says, well, why? Don't you know that I, you don't need to do that for me? I'm God. I don't need your vows. I, I've made a vow to you. Jephthah had great faith in understanding God's power. He had great faith in knowing that God could defeat his enemies, but he lacked faith in knowing that God truly loved him, and God would do everything for him. And that's our bottom line for today, is, is remembering this simple truth that we should never put our own promises before God's promises. And of course, the single greatest example of God's promise is the cross. You see, the cross is the, is the ultimate reminder of the greatest vow ever made. The cross is is the ultimate reminder of showing just how far God will go to rescue us. Because when we know the gospel message through the cross, we know that redemption only comes through him. When we look at the cross and we we look at what the, the promise of the cross is, the promise of the cross tells us that there is nothing that we can do that will
1: ever bring us favor into
0: God. The promise of the cross is that you and I are completely lost, however of what Christ did on the cross, we can find redemption. We can find forgiveness. We can find peace in knowing that we don't have, it's that the, the Christian life is not about what all, What do I need to do? Rather, how do I pursue God deeply every day? The promise of the cross says, stop worrying about living a, a, a life that's a, a, about how much good you can do in life and how much you need to promise to God instead saying, look at the promise that God has made to you promise of the cross says God says I've got this the promise of the cross says that listen I am the God almighty I can literally raise people from the dead I can defeat sin I can do everything and the promise of the cross is that he sends the Holy Spirit to live in us that when we accept Christ as a personal Savior that the scriptures tell us that the spirit of God lives within us and the same power in our heart, and he lives with us, and now our lives is no longer a pursuit of what all do I need to do, how do I please God, how do I find favor, Rather, the Christian life is about God, I just want to trust in that, I just want to know what a life of faith is all about, and so that's my encouragement for you this morning, is as you look at Jephthah's story, and uh, there's certainly tragedy, and there's heartbreak, and yet he also demonstrated faith, I hope that each of us today can say, you know, I, that's the life I want. I want a life of faith. I want to pursue who God is personally. I want to pursue that love and that redemption, that freedom that comes in the, in the greatest promise of all time, which is that God.